Well, today we, uh, we begin a, a brand new series called Elijah-sha, which is really hard to say, and it's even harder to spell. So uh, that's okay, though, because it's not a real word. It's just a word that we sort of invented. What we're going to be doing over the course of the next several months, I really don't know how long this series will last. We'll just sort of you know, play it by ear. Um, we're studying the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And there are these two prophets from the Old Testament that, that do some amazing things, and God does incredible things through them. And honestly, if you, look at, if you look at the Bible, if you look at Scripture, some of the most incredible, unbelievable, perplexing, awe-inspiring stories in the entirety of Scripture happen in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And so we're going to spend a few months studying their lives, their stories. We just smushed their names together and made up Elijah-sha, because their stories actually run into each other's. Elisha was Elijah's understudy, and that had to be so confusing for all the people that, that lived at that time. And so there will be times, I'm, I'm just promising, I'm going to say this now, disclaimer, there will be several times over the next few months where I say Elijah, but I mean Elisha, or where I say Elisha, but I mean Elijah on accident, because I'm just getting tripped up in my head, but that had to happen back then too, so it's, it's okay, all right? So forgive me in advance if I say Elijah, I mean Elisha, like 400 times over the next three months. I've been really excited about this series for several months. I don't think there's ever been a series that, uh, that has been kind of in, on the back burner, in the back of my mind, something I've been working on uh, for this long. And I'm excited about it for several reasons. Number one, like I just mentioned, their stories are just cool. These are really amazing stories. They're, they're fun. Number two, we actually have a lot in common with Elijah and Elisha, believe it or not. Even though they lived almost 3,000 years ago in a completely different culture, We have so much in common with them. Elijah and Elisha are two people committed to God in a culture that is rapidly, rapidly moving away from God. And so we we learn a lot from Elijah and Elisha about how to to be bold in our faith and how to stand strong in our faith, even if the world around us doesn't value that at all. I'm really excited for us just to dive into Scripture, just to open up the Bible and, and, and study the Bible together because it's so important for us that we're not just excited about Jesus, but that we're equipped to actually live the life that Jesus has called us to live. We can't stop at excitement. We come together on Sunday mornings and we, we often get excited about who God is and what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in this world. And it is exciting. Excitement is a good thing. It's important, but we need to be equipped. Because if we're excited, but we're not equipped, we'll walk out of here on Sundays with a lot of enthusiasm, but it's going to quickly fade as we go about our week, as we go about our lives, because we don't have what we need. We don't have the maturity that we need to actually follow through with that excitement. And there's very few things that that add to that maturity. There's very few things that equip us, like studying God's word, knowing what God has done, because what God has done greatly informs what God is currently doing, what God will do. So I'm excited for us to grow and and to be mature. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, that's something you're still figuring out. We are so glad that you're here. We want you to get something out of, of every message that you can take home and apply to your life. We want it to be practical. But we also want you to know that if you do decide to follow Jesus, and we hope that that happens like, I don't know, now, if you decide that, if you do, We don't just want to invite you into a shallow faith. We want to invite you into a depth of faith with Jesus because there's this endless depth when it comes to him. And all of us here, we're all at different points in our journey. None of us have arrived. None of us really even believe that you can arrive. But we're all trying to go deeper. We're all trying to go further than we've been. And we want to make sure that that together as a family, we help each other grow. We help each other have that depth of faith that every single one of us can have. That's important. So let's just go ahead and and jump into the story of Elijah. He's first. 
And we're going to look at Elijah uh, as he's first introduced in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. So here we go. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. We'll go ahead and pause there. Uh, That's the first verse that Elijah is introduced in the Bible, and that's as far as we're going to get today. And so if you're going, wow, how long is this series going to be? Potentially long. Um, Well, we'll definitely go more than one verse a week, but but there's, there's actually a lot, a lot in this verse, believe it or not. This is the first moment that we're introduced to Elijah in the story of the Bible. He kind of arrives out of nowhere. There's no backstory given of him. He just shows up. But there is so much going on just in this one verse that it's, it's more than enough for us to talk about today. In fact, in fact, there's this huge, practical, personal, powerful lesson for every single one of us just in this verse. And I'll go ahead and tell you what that lesson is, and then we'll circle back around here in a few minutes, and we'll actually delve into that. But the lesson, the takeaway for us today is simply this, little g, big T. Little g, big T. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means here in just a minute. But first, we, we've got to have some context. Because sometimes, sometimes you open up your Bible, or someone gets on a stage and starts talking about the Bible, and we're all from different places, we all have different levels of experience. Some of us are like, yeah, I know this story well, I know the context, I know what's happened before this, I know what's going on in the world. Some of us are like, I'm lost. Lost, clueless, and we have no context, and it's hard to understand what's happening here. It's really hard to understand what God is doing here if we don't know that context. Because this is one of those verses that we oftentimes encounter in the Old Testament, especially, where God kind of seems like a jerk. You know, it's a, it's a verse where, where this person is saying, hey, God's going to make it, you know, go several years without rain. It makes it seem like God is really angry, God's really upset, and he's just losing his temper, and he's, he, he's using his godness to spike people or something like that. That's not what's happening here. Not at all. But for us to understand what is actually happening and the, the takeaway for us, we've got to know the context. And so I want to make sure we understand a few different things together before we can get the most out of this. Number one, we have to understand the nation of Israel. Really quick. The story of of God interacting with humanity in the Bible is really the story of the nation of Israel because what what God did very early on was he chose this man named Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going to bless the entire earth, the entire world, all the people in the world he was going to bless through Abraham and his family. And when God made that promise to Abraham, he was talking about Jesus, that God would bring Jesus, God in the flesh, to the world through the lineage of Abraham, that he was going to use this group of people to be his representatives, his vehicle, so to speak, into the world. And so when you read the the Old Testament, for example, what you're really reading is God working with this one group of people, this one nation, and he is slowly, bit by bit, kind of layer by layer, revealing who he really is, who he actually is, until it all culminates with Jesus. That's why sometimes you you might read something in the Old Testament and be like, whoa, that's, I don't understand that. That doesn't seem like, like Jesus. Well, It's God slowly over time revealing who he is. He doesn't give it to us all at once. We couldn't handle it like that if he did. And so the nation of Israel is a very special, special nation to God because at this point in history, Elijah's point in history, this is the group of people that God is working with in the world to reveal to the entire world because he loves the entire world, but he's working through this one group of people to show the world who he is and what he's all about. But the nation of Israel wasn't very good at that. It wasn't, it wasn't something that they naturally did well, and so God had these people called prophets. Elijah is a prophet, and so we have to understand who prophets are. 
And see, originally, when it came to this, this nation, they were led by prophets. So a prophet was someone who would hear from God. We're blessed to live on this side of Jesus. Because if you have a relationship with Jesus, that means that you have access to the, to the Holy Spirit, to all of God. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you have the capacity in you to experience everything that God can have for you in this world. You can hear from God. You can hear him speak. You can know what it's like to be led by God. But at this point in history, you know, Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't paved the way for all of us. And so God would choose specific people. And the Bible would say that the Holy Spirit would come upon those people and they would be able to hear from God. They would be able to see history, to see what was going on in their world through the, the eyes of God, so to speak. They would have God's perspective. And God's intention was that his people, the nation of Israel, would be led by these prophets. But eventually, the people of Israel said, no, we'll, we'll take a king. We would just much rather have a king like all the other nations in the world. And God was like, you do not want a king. You know, most of, most of history in the last several hundred years, 500 years, has been all the people on the earth deciding we don't want a king, right? We'd rather have a democracy. And God's like, you have a king. You don't want a king. But the people said, no, we want a king. And he said, okay. And God let them have what they wanted. But even though Israel is at this point in time led by a king, not a prophet, prophets still existed. And in God's eyes, the prophets were more powerful, had greater authority from God than even kings. For example, Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, this is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, he says, look, I've put my words in your mouth. Today I appoint you to stand up against nations and kingdoms. Some you must uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. So in God's eyes, prophets were over even kings and kingdoms. And that meant that oftentimes prophets would have to challenge kings. Prophets would, would be told by God, hey, go tell the king something he does not want to hear. Like some of us have bosses where the idea of having to deliver bad news to our bosses, you know, is, is terrifying. Because maybe, worst case scenario, the boss flips out and says you're fired. But worst case scenario, if you make an ancient king, like, this is, this is barbaric times in history. Like, you make an ancient king mad, they're like, kill him. And someone right there on the spot would be like, all right, and they would kill you. Like, this is a, a terrifying thing. But God would speak to prophets, and he would often tell his prophets, hey, I want you to go challenge the king. And that's what's happening in this verse. Elijah is challenging King Ahab. So let's talk about Ahab for a second, because we need to know some things about Ahab. Ahab, at this point in history, is the king of Israel. Now, this is about 870 BC. That's when Ahab's reign started. About 60 years before this, the nation of Israel actually divided into two separate nations. You had Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And they divided really because this king named Jeroboam decided that Israel was not going to worship God anymore, and instead he introduced idol worship into Israel officially, and a couple of the different tribes of Israel revolted, and they broke off, and they formed their own nation. They called it Judah. And so Judah holds out a little bit longer. that They stay sovereign a little bit longer than Israel does. Both end up getting, getting conquered by other nations, Judah stays faithful to God a little longer, so they last a little bit longer. Israel, not so much. Israel's a, a terrible, wicked place at this point in time. They do not care about God. They've really abandoned God. And Ahab is the king. And this has happened about 60 years before Ahab began his reign. Ahab's father was also the king. He was a man named Omri. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, we learn a little bit about Omri. It says, but Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So Ahab's dad, 
King Omri, is the worst king in the history of Israel. He's the worst. And Ahab gets to succeed him. Ahab has a chance to right the ship. Ahab has a chance to course correct. But that's not what happens. 1 Kings 16, 29. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria. Samaria was the, the capital city of Israel at this point in time. For 22 years... But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So it's the same language we have with his father Omri. Omri's the worst king Israel's ever had. Ahab shows up and he basically says, hey guys, hold my beer, because I'm not going like, to let my dad outdo me. You know, I'm not going to let my father outdo me when it comes to ruining this nation. And so he's the worst. He's the worst of the worst, literally. And then it says, as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, that's the one who introduced idol worship to Israel, caused the nation to split in the first place, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria, and then he set up an Asherah pole. Asherah was a, uh, a female goddess counterpart to Baal. And it says, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any other of the kings before him. So, not a good guy, this Ahab. And, and it says that Ahab is just terrible, but as if that weren't bad enough, he marries Jezebel. So let's talk about, about Jezebel for a second. Because chances are, if you don't know much about Jezebel in the Bible, you still associate the name Jezebel with something bad. Right? Like I, I, said, I said last week that Megan and I are expecting our fourth child. Um, yeah. Very different reaction than when I said we were expecting our first child several years ago from the crowd, you know, very, very different. And, uh, and it's, you know, here's the thing, it's totally my fault. I take full responsibility for my actions, 100%, you know, I don't know. Um, do pray for us, though, because the baby at this point is, is due on March 24th. Rarely does the baby come on the due date, but if, if that were to play out, we would have in our four children's birthdays, February 3rd, February 23rd, March 24th, April 6th. It's just like a machine gun of birthdays. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm not like big on birthday parties and stuff like that. And so it's just hard for me. Pray for me. This is hard. Um, pray for me a lot. But, but here's the thing. Our, our first two children are Liam and Lily. And I tell a lot of stories about them. When Judah was born, we went with a different, you know, name. We, we didn't want to go with another L name. Because we're thinking, oh man, if we go with an, an L name for Judah, then if we end up having a fourth child one day, which, let me just be clear, we were not planning on doing, um, but if we ever do have a fourth child, then we'll kind of be stuck having to go with another L name, and, and maybe by then we were scraping the bottom of the barrel for L names that we, we like. So we said, let's let Judah be his own, and let's name him something with, with a different letter. So he's Judah, and it kind of makes sense, since we have two L named children, now we've got Judah. It kind of makes sense to have another J. Two L's, two J's. We can like pit them against each other. We can see, you know, which pair turns out the best and, and vote the other off the island. Like there's all kinds of options if we want to. And so, so we haven't decided whether or not we're going to go with a J name. But if we do, and if we happen to have a girl, I can tell you one name that we will not name her. Right? And that is Jezebel. Like, if we have a boy, Judas is off the table because A, sounds a lot like Judah. B, the guy who stabbed Jesus in the back, just, it's, just, it's a bad name. And so, not Judas, not Jezebel. If by chance you are named Jezebel, 
Because it's possible. It was the 7,517th most popular girl's name last year. I looked it up. Not very popular. Ironically, the name Elijah is a more popular girl's name than Jezebel. But it's possible that you or someone you know is Jezebel, and if that's the case, you know, you got a lot of work cut out for you, but you got to change the reputation of your name, so go for it, do it, we're with you, we're praying for you, we support you, okay? Just know that. But, but what, what is it about Jezebel that makes her so bad? Because when you, when you read this, you can just hear, like, the disdain in the author's voice. They're like, as if Ahab weren't bad enough, he went off and married Jezebel. Like, it's, something is, is obviously bad about this woman. What is it? Well, well, here's what we know. The Bible says that she was a Sidonian. And what that means is that she was from ancient Phoenicia. It was very normal for the the kings to marry into the royal families of other nations to form alliances. That's what's happening with King Ahab. He marries the princess of a city-state called Sidon. Phoenicia was this group of city-states, and the the two most powerful city-states in Phoenicia were Tyre and Sidon. They they were very, very wicked places. And, in fact, Jesus references them in Matthew, or rather Luke chapter 10. He says, what sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Those were two cities in Jesus' day that rejected Jesus completely. He says, for if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you. Now for Jesus to look at at these two Jewish cities that, that he's teaching in and saying, hey, you're worse off than Tyre and Sidon, like that, that, That's bad. This would have been a huge slap in the face. A huge slap in the face to all of the the, the people who heard that. Like these were almost like rivals to them. Anyone here a Tennessee fan, for example? Anyone? So just imagine like a Florida fan, right? And if you happen to watch that game last night, wow. Uh, Pray for all of our Tennessee fans here. And pray that they, they learn why you shouldn't root for Tennessee. Like, just, you, you know, there's all kinds of different teams. It's just like, no, I'm teasing. But, but it's like, there's, there's, there's this, it's like a rivalry. It's like, it's like someone telling you that your worst enemy, someone that you sort of despise and, and whatever, is better off than you. you. You would instantly be like, no, no way, that's not possible. That's what Jesus is doing here, and he's comparing them to Tyre and Sidon. It just so happens that Jezebel is from Sidon. So what is it about about Jezebel, and maybe we could say, what is it about Sidon, where she's from, that's so bad? And it all has to do with, with Baal. It all has to do with Baal. We read a little bit earlier, and I'm going to read it again. It says that Jezebel was the daughter of King Ethbaal of, of the Sidonians, and, and once Ahab marries her, he began to bow down in worship of Baal. He built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Okay, so what that means is this. It means that Jezebel brings a passionate worship of Baal with her to Israel. She worships Baal. Baal was a Phoenician god. We'll talk about him a little bit more here in just a second. But, but she brings this worship of Baal with her. Ahab is very influenced by Jezebel. He, he starts to worship Baal himself. And as the king, he builds an altar and a temple to Baal in Israel. And when the king, when the king builds an altar and a temple to a, a, a god in your nation's capital, what that means is that your king is establishing the worship of that particular God as the official religion for your area. So Ahab is is declaring that from this point on, in Israel, we worship Baal. We worship this this false God from Phoenicia. 
And this is kind of what prompts Elijah to go and have this confrontation with, with King Ahab. Now, here's what's really interesting about Baal. In Phoenician culture, Baal was, was called the storm deity. Baal was the one who made it rain. So Baal was, was referenced as the rider on the clouds. The Phoenicians believed that thunder was the voice of Baal. And this is an, an ancient agricultural society, and so there's nothing that's more important to them than, than harvest time. There's nothing that's more important to them than rain. I'll never forget when I was in high school, um, I was on a, a basketball team, and we traveled, and, and we played in this tournament in like the middle of nowhere, Georgia, okay? And very, very, very rural area, and most of my life, I, I've lived in a lot of different places, but most of them have not been extremely rural like farming communities, but that's what this was. And before this basketball game, this guy came out and prayed, and I remember so clearly that he was like thanking God profusely for the rain. And I was sitting there as this 17-year-old like, man, I mean, I guess I'm glad it rained too, but I feel like we're kind of going overboard with all this, you know, thank you God for the rain and thank you for the crops. And I'm sitting there going like, what's this about? And it, it had never occurred to me that if you are a farmer, if you're someone who depends on something growing in the ground for your very livelihood and survival, you are extremely, extremely grateful for rain. When we look at the forecast and we see rain and we go, oh, come on, you know? Like, you guys know if you've been in his hands for a while, our roof has opportunities, and so when it rains, we get lots of leaks. And so when I see that it's raining, I'm like, oh, here we go. But if you're a farmer and it rains, you're sitting there going, thank God, and the Phoenicians believed that Baal was the one who made it rain. The storm deity the rider on the clouds, thunder is his voice. And this is the, the false God that, that Ahab has established as the God of Israel. Okay, so, so knowing all of that, now that we have all that context, because I know that's a lot, let's go back and let's look once again at 1 Kings 17.1 and understand what's going on here a little bit better. It says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, see what he's saying there? Not the God you serve, but the God that I serve. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. So essentially, what Elijah is saying is, hey, Ahab, your majesty. You know, God and I were talking, and, uh, and he wants you to know that he has noticed that you've built a temple to Baal, and he's noticed that that you and Jezebel are very passionate in your worship of Baal, and, and he's noticed that you have set up Baal worship as the worship in Israel, and all the Israelites are now worshiping Baal and rejecting God. He's noticed that. He's noticed that you are now praying to Baal for rain. He's heard your prayers. He's noticed that, that all of Israel now is praying and asking Baal to make it rain, and so God wants you to know, King Ahab, that he's going to give you exactly what you're asking for. Great news, God is answering your prayer. He's going to let Baal handle the rain duties for a while. So keep praying to Baal, keep asking Baal for rain. God is happy to take a, a little bit of a break. I mean, he works so hard, and he's going to let Baal handle the rain for a while, so keep doing your thing. The only problem with this King Ahab is that it's not going to rain, like at all, because Baal is not the one who makes it rain. And so keep, keep praying to Baal, keep asking Baal, and over the course of the next few years, you're going to learn just how powerful Baal really is. And you're going to learn how powerful God really is. See, this, this, is not, this is not God being angry and spiteful. 
This is actually this moment in Scripture that shows us this characteristic of God that's, that's amazing, one that we very, very easily forget. Our God is faithful, okay? The Bible says that he never abandons us. Our God does not abandon us. At the same time, he does not hold us against our will. God has never forced anyone to worship him. God has never made people stay true to him. It's just like what happened with Israel in in the king situation. When they're like, hey, we want a king. And God's like, no, you don't. We want a king. Essentially, they were firing God. They were rejecting God. In fact, God spoke to a prophet, Samuel, who was the prophet, the judge of Israel at that time, whenever the people said, we don't want you or God anymore. We, We want a king. And God spoke to Samuel and said, hey, don't get dejected, Samuel. They're rejecting me, not you. And when when they decided to reject God, God gave them what they wanted. God does not force us to follow him. And so he's telling Ahab and all of Israel, hey, if you want to pray to Baal, if Baal is who you want, I'll let you have Baal. But it's not going to work out. In fact, it's going to be a a disaster. This is kind of a spoiler alert, but we'll fast forward a few years and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks. Like Baal doesn't come through for Israel because he's not real. Baal does not make it rain. And this is a huge problem for Israel. I mean, again, agricultural society completely dependent on crops for survival. No rain for a few months is a problem. No rain for a few years. We're talking a huge problem. They are in big trouble. They are in in big time trouble because they have put their faith and their trust in a little g God. And that's that's what we talked about earlier, the takeaway. Little g, big T. If we put our faith and our trust in little g gods, we are in for big T trouble. Like little g, big T. Now, I say that, and it's funny because it doesn't sound super practical as far as our our everyday experience. Like I didn't pass any Baal churches on my way here this morning, you know? And it's funny, sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll read about this. By the way, one of the reasons I'm so glad that we're going through the scriptures together with, with these stories is that we just get to study whatever's next. And this particular verse, this particular opening is all about idol worship and the effect that it has on a culture. And sometimes it's really easy for us as Christians, you know, we're in church on a Sunday morning, many of us, most of us have professed a faith in Jesus to say, yeah, idol worship, definitely past that, not really relevant to me, and, and we sort of move on to something else that is. But I'll say that at least in my life, maybe I'm alone, idol worship is like a constant temptation. When God first spoke to Moses and gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, this is Exodus chapter 20 verse 3, was you shall have no other gods but me. You will have no other gods but me. That's the very first commandment that God gives. And you would think that that's just like a throwaway, like obviously don't worship a false god. Okay? And then he moves on, he's like, don't kill each other, don't steal each other's stuff, don't take each other's wives, don't lie. You know, good human behavior. But the first one, the whole don't worship another God, it just sounds like such a, a throwaway, such an obvious thing. But is it possible that God put that first because of how absolutely practical, how absolutely constant our need to remember that actually is? Because the reality is we live in a world full of little g-gods They're just not as obvious as an ancient Phoenician guy named Baal. But we live in a world that is full of little g-gods and we are constantly tempted to bow down in worship of little g-gods. See, the reality is, practically speaking, I'm not talking about your, your thoughts and your mind. I'm talking about practically how we live. Practically speaking, in how we live, 
Whatever you're putting your hope in, whatever you're putting your trust in, whatever you're depending on for your success, that is your God, practically speaking. So it's completely possible to be a Christian, to be a person of faith and having professed faith in Jesus, but live in such a way where you're actually putting your hope and your trust, you're making your actual day-by-day God something that isn't Jesus. Like it happens, happens all the time. We, we see it happen during political cycles. Every time there's an election, there, there's this tendency to get fixated on politics and to start to, to put our trust and our hope in a candidate or, or a party or some political movement. And we think, oh, th- this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the person who fixes things, who makes things better. This is the person with the answers. And we get so passionate about, about this, this person or this party or whatever, and we put our trust and our hope in this, and, and you know, by a, a rule of law, I think you should never put your hope or trust in a donkey or an elephant. Like, just don't, don't do that at all, you know? A, a blue donkey, red elephant, I don't, whatever, don't do that. Because government begins with a little g because it's not God. And so government, look, government's the cause of most problems. Why would it be the solution, okay? It's just the truth, but it's not just things like that. Like, think about money, for example. Jesus actually equated money with, with this kind of rivalry with God. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. I was having breakfast with, uh, with Ken Kington. It was so awesome to have Ken with us the last few weeks. I was having breakfast with Ken a couple weeks back at, uh, at Cracker Barrel on Chastain. That's our spot. It's me and Ken's spot. Uh, I also have breakfast there a lot with, uh, with Steve Craig, but don't tell Ken that or Steve that because I, I don't want them to feel like, like I'm cheating. You know, like it's, they both think it's, it's our spot, but it's not. Um, and so, so I'm having breakfast with Ken, and we're talking about idol worship. We're talking about this. Just, a, just your normal, everyday conversation about idol worship at Cracker Barrel. Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. You've been there. So... Ken and I are talking, and he starts talking about money as an idol. And the way Ken phrased it was so perfect. He said, you know, if, uh, if you ever hear someone say that if they had a million dollars, it would solve all their problems. Or if we ever think, man, if I just had, had $100,000, if I had a million dollars, that would fix all my problems. If you hear someone say that, or if you think that, that means that to some degree you believe money is God. Because if you're saying that this would solve all my problems, you're saying that this is my God. This is what I'm depending on. This is what I'm hoping in. And by the way, look up the personal stories of people who have won the lottery and find out how good of a God a million dollars is. It's not. You know, suicide rate is much higher among millionaires than than people who make less money than that. Money is a bad God. You can worship money. But it's a, it's a bad God. It's a bad master. It is adulterous. It leaves you. It goes to other people all the time. And so put your faith in a God that's faithful. Like be faithful to the one who's faithful. Money's a bad God. It, it can be government. It can be money. It can be anything. There's so many little G gods that we can be tempted to worship, tempted to depend on, to put our trust in. I'll say this. We're actually trained in our culture. We are trained from birth to believe that we, ourselves, are God. Not, not like you're told that as a child, like, you're the God of the universe, you know? <laughs> but, but here's the, the truth. If you've grown up in this country for the last, you know, 50, 60 years, which is probably all of us, most of us, 
uh, the number one worldview that, is in, that has affected the way our culture thinks and behaves is secular humanism. I talk about this from time to time because I think it's really important for us to understand how we're programmed. It's really hard sometimes to see the light of day if you, you can't see what you've been taught, what you've been conditioned to believe. Because what our culture believes stands in stark contrast to what Jesus actually says very, very often. Secular humanism says that we are good, essentially. We are good. That we have everything we need inside of ourselves, independent of God. We don't need God. We don't even need to believe in God. We don't need to acknowledge that there is a God. That's completely unnecessary in secular humanism. That's why it's secular humanism. We have everything we need to accomplish whatever we want to accomplish in life. We are good. It's interesting because this whole worldview falls apart really fast because we can look at the world and say, hey, if we're so good naturally, why is the world struggling? And what a secular humanist will say to you is that we are not bad, our environments make us bad. But we're the ones that make the environments, right? So if we're so good and the environments keep being so corrupt and, and, and bad and negative, why is that happening? Like, like, if we're the good ones, shouldn't the environments that we create be good most of the time? And yet, there's so many toxic environments, but we're the ones that make them. It falls apart really, really fast. The number one like, statement, the number one belief and, and sort of you know, outcry of secular humanism is, is this. It says, hey, you know, find yourself, be yourself, and believe in yourself. And we've all been taught that. We've grown up in a culture that says that. Hey, you've got to find you. You've got to discover you. And then you've got to just be you. You just be you, man. And then you've got to believe in you. But Jesus says, believe in me. Jesus says, put your faith in me. God says, look, believe in me because, because there are things that God can do that we cannot do. There are problems that we cannot solve. There are issues in this world that no amount of human creativity, ingenuity, or intelligence can fix. That only God can do. And so Jesus actually says, hey, believe in me. And let me make you into who you're meant to be. So we're, we're conditioned by culture to make our own intelligence, our own creativity, our own ideas, our own feelings, God. And we live our lives and we make our decisions dictated by what we think is best, what we feel is best, what we want. And when we do that, when we do that, we're essentially saying, I'm the authority. My perspective is king and we're making ourselves out to, to be a God of sorts and we're not. That's what we're taught to do. But, but we are little G gods. Like we don't have the ability to make it rain. We don't. Once it had been raining for a really long time, and uh, this was a couple summers ago, and, and Liam, my son, loves to swim at, at the pool at his grandparents' house, and, and so he just prayed out loud that it wouldn't rain so he could swim at the pool. And it didn't rain for like a month and a half at their house. And they came to us and said, could you please ask Liam to make it, to like pray for rain? Because we feel like God maybe took it too seriously, took it too literally. Like, like, here's the reality. Because we have a relationship with God, you know, I don't know if that's why it didn't rain or not. Uh, could have been. But we actually do have the ability to influence God. You read scripture, the prayers of his people matter to him. He answers prayers. There's times where he makes things happen in this world because of the prayers of his people. But he's the one doing it, not us right? I can't make it rain any more than Baal could make it rain. So I should never let my own personal beliefs, 
feelings, ideas, intelligence, charm, charisma, talents, looks. Like, I should, should never, like, obviously the looks department, don't rely on that at all, you know. My, my little brother's actually here from Missouri. He's, are you here? Is that Uncle Eric? It's my little brother. He's probably the better looking of the two of us. When he was in kindergarten, this is a true story, um, and then we'll wrap up. I just have to, he's here, he's from Missouri, he's here for a weekend, so I'm going to use this chance, because I'm a big brother, and I'll always be one. Um, and Christina, you probably don't know this story, but uh, when Aaron was in kindergarten, very first day of school, I was in middle school, he got, he, got, he got in our car, and he had big tears in his eyes. It was his first day of school. And we were like, was your day okay? What's wrong? And he said, like, nothing. Tears welling up. And finally, it just broke. And he just, tears start streaming down his face. And he reaches into his pockets, and he pulls out quarters, handfuls of quarters. And he throws them on the ground in our car, and he says, all the girls put quarters in my pocket and told me that I'm their boyfriend. You know? And I was a middle school boy, so I was like, how did you do that? Like, teach me. Please, you know? So maybe he can put his trust in, in looks. I cannot. We can't, we can't put our faith and our hope in anything but God. That's, that's why we have this choice today. And the choice is to put our faith in the, the one true God. First Kings 8.60 says, One day the people over all the earth will know that the Lord alone is God and there is no other. Isaiah 44.6 says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Isaiah 46.9, Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. There's one God. And if we let him sit on the throne of our hearts and our lives, the trouble that comes our way will never seem as big as we might think that it is. If we let God, the real God, be our God, the problems and the issues that we face, they just, they don't look as big as they do when you have a little g God. Little g, big T, but you flip that and you make the real God, the one true God, the God of your life, the God of your heart, the problems, the issues, the struggles that you face, they, they are small in comparison to the power of God. And like we said earlier, like we learned with this interaction with Ahab, God's not going to make you worship him. He's not going to make you place him at the center of your life. He's not going to make you go to him for, for your needs. If you want to choose to put your hope in, in your career or your, your money or your ideas or your investments or your plans or whatever it is, you can, you, can, you can do that. You can do that. It just may not rain for a while, whatever that means for you. And that's not what God wants because he loves you. He loves you. He's inviting all of us today to affirm the fact that he is our God. Ezekiel 37, 27. God says, I will make my home among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's an invitation for all of us to make sure that God is God. That we've got the, the big G God, the real God, on the throne of our hearts. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you realize sitting here, oh my gosh, there's something else I've been putting my hope in and my trust in. There's a little G God on the throne of my heart. Reject that God and replace that God with God and just pray and say, God, you're in control. I surrender to you. I, I'm, I'm putting all my hope and all my trust in you. 
And maybe some of us have done that so many times in life, that's our normal, but we just need to reaffirm that today. To walk out of here just saying, you know what, God? My focus has drifted a little bit. I, I, I've been putting my hope and my trust in, in something less than you, and I just want you to know that I'm done with that. And, and my focus, my gaze, my, my mind, my heart is just on you. So God, I just want to reaffirm today that you sit on the throne of my heart. It's a powerful thing to do. And we're going we're gonna to pray right now. We're going to wrap up with one more worship song. So worship team, if you want to come, um, I just want to encourage you to, to stick around for the next three minutes, four minutes, whatever it is, and use this song as a, as a moment for you personally just to reaffirm that God is God in your life. As a chance to reject and, and replace some little G God that you've maybe accidentally depended on or purposely depended on, to reject that and just to have a moment right now to say, God, you are the God of my heart. You are the God of my life. Have your way. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you're not Baal. Seriously, Lord, thank you that you're not just some made-up name, some man-made fictional story. that we have to pretend has power. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the name above all names. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the real God. You're the one who makes it rain. And every single one of us needs you to do something in our lives, Lord. Every single one of us needs some version of rain in our, in our lives. We need you to, to break through. We need you to, to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And we are, as a group of people today, saying that you are God and we are going to put you where you belong. We are going to invite you where you belong. We're going to invite you to sit on the throne of our hearts and we're going to worship you because we believe that you are the one true God. And we love you and we know that you love us. And we ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.